The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you could find your place in the book of Acts, chapter 19 today. Chapter 19. I want to tell you a little story while you're finding that. And this will hopefully get our perspective kind of headed the right direction. So when I was a teenager, I, uh, I had a job in all throughout high school up until my senior year uh, working in a landscaping company. And it was every day after school till dark and then summers, daylight to dark, six days a week. And it, it was, uh, sometimes it was challenging work, but it was, it was a good job. And it paid pretty good, and so I was, I was thankful to have it. And uh, then when I got to my last year in high school, um, my parents kind of encouraged me to maybe think about, all right, if I'm going to do something different, or if I'm going go to go to college or try to get a job in a different area, maybe I should think about trying to get a part-time job, having something more to do with kind of the area I was going toward as far as schooling and everything. So I got a job part-time at a lawyer's office in Lexington. And uh, it was just after school. And I, there's one particular moment while I was working that job that I just wanted to tell you about that has a lot to do with, with what we're going to read today. I was not, I know this is going to be shocking, so I was not the most responsible teenager. I, so I didn't always do what I was supposed to do, and uh, I didn't listen, and uh, I was pretty selfish, and just kind of like whatever I wanted to do. And, and if I if I shirked a responsibility that I had, like oh well, at least I was having fun. I, I, I didn't really care as much about what other people thought. It was just about me. I was 17, you know. Okay, it's a, lot, a lot of teenagers are like that. Well, at least what I told myself anyway, trying to make myself feel better. So there's this one particular afternoon that I was just piddling, I was piddling around, okay? And if you know what that means, that word piddling, uh, I was at work and I was looking like I was working, filing papers or something, but I wasn't really working. I was just like, how much longer I got to be here? All right, how can I draw this out and just do as little as possible till I get to go home? Well, anyway, at, at this point, the boss man, the lawyer who, it was his office, it was his name was the name of the office, okay, um, he called me in his office about, uh, I don't know, about 4.30 in the afternoon, and I sat down, he shut the door, I thought, uh-oh, this, this doesn't look good, and he proceeded to, uh, to holler at me a good little bit about, the poor work ethic I had and the poor work I was doing and uh, and it didn't but here's what he said and this is the part that, that goes with the, the message today I, I will never forget it as long as I live he said he looked at me and he pointed his finger and he said your daddy got you this job but you got to keep it and, and then it just dawned on me Oh, you mean I didn't get this job just because I was a good kid and you thought I was, you know, had a lot to offer and help? Oh, it was only because 
I was my father's son. That's the only reason I was there. And if I wanted to stay there, I needed to up my game a little bit. I needed to be responsible. I needed to learn how to, how to work and how to, to do what was expected of me and, and not be a slacker. But those words just kind of, I mean, it hit hard at that moment, but it, later on that week and the months and the, the rest of that year, just kinda, I just kept kind of circling back to that. Your daddy got you this job. So I realized at that point, it was nothing I deserved. It was nothing I had done. I hadn't earned anything. It's not like I had walked in there and interviewed for this job and they thought, oh, well, this, this young man looked like he could do something. No, no. The only reason I was given a chance was because they knew my father. So when we go through the scripture today, I just want that to kind of sit in the back of your mind. Just remember that concept. And then uh, I, I, I pray it'll make sense when we get uh, through this passage. So let's read Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 20. And uh, we'll read those 20 verses. We'll get to the rest of it next week. Uh, we're moving, you know, getting here to the last third of the book of Acts. So we'll, we'll be finishing up first of next year. Uh, but this particular part here, the end of Paul's second missionary journey, is starting to get... Really interesting. Acts 19, verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. They talk about John the Baptist. Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. And he entered the synagogue, Paul did, and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that your word will be made clear to us today by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding and then give us the strength we need to be obedient. And Lord, I pray that your word, your authority, your power, your truth will be the only things that stay in our hearts and minds today. Anything that is, is not consistent with your word, I pray you would just clean it out of our minds. Help us to cling to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's three things in this particular passage that kind of jump out at you. There's three paragraphs, really. There's uh, the first seven verses, then there's a three-verse kind of uh, interjection there, and then the last uh, ten verses uh, go together. So we're going to kind of look at each one and see how they piece together. The first thing I want us to see today is that it's the Spirit of God that changes lives. The Spirit of God changes lives. And here's why we see this in this first part of chapter 19. Apollos was still in Corinth. Paul had left Corinth, left Ephesus. He'd already been there once. And he had gone back around, you know, made a loop, checking on all the disciples that he had made the first time through on his first missionary trip. And he had then left there and come back to Ephesus. So when he gets there, he finds some folks that are some showing some signs of uh, being disciples. So when the Bible says he, he came across some disciples, understand, he, he's a fruit inspector. You know what that means? You'll know them by their fruit. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. Every tree is known by its own kind of fruit. Ring a bell? Jesus said... You'll, you'll recognize them by their fruit. You can go back to Matthew chapter 7 when he talks about false prophets and you'll see that exact wording there. So what he's saying is Paul is noticing, observing a lifestyle, some actions, behaviors. And so he talks to them, asks them a question. He asks them two questions. The first one is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he's assuming they believed in Jesus. But, but look at their response. What? We didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. So I guess if you didn't know there was a Holy Spirit, you probably don't have him, right? Doesn't that make sense? So what we see here is some people who have repented of sin but not yet believed in Jesus. Okay, so when John the Baptist came on the scene, you go back to the Gospels and you see John shows up and his whole six-month ministry was designed specifically to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he was preparing the way, right? So he was calling people to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was saying, Jesus is here, he's coming, so you best get right. Confess your sins, repent, your, repent of your sins, and be prepared for Jesus. In other words, he kept telling people, don't believe in me. Believe in the one that's coming after me. 
because it's the Spirit of God that will change your life. So Paul has to explain to these disciples here, he says, into what were you baptized, verse 3? They said, into John's baptism. So what he does in verse 4 is he explains the difference between what John the Baptist said and what Jesus would eventually say. Okay, so he, he shows them that difference. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. So his whole thing was to shine a light on Jesus and take the light off of himself. Now, he was a, a crazy-looking guy from what the Bible tells us. He stayed out in the wilderness. He wore uh, animal skins for clothes. He ate wild locusts and honey. And so he was, he was preparing to be focused on his mission of pointing people to Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? So if you understand, John was never about himself. That was never his issue. He was pointing people to the one who could save their souls. So Paul says, John baptized for this reason, but he told the people to believe in Jesus. So look at their response in verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul explained, presumably, explained to them the gospel. So uh, David Peterson writes it this way. He says, John indicated that the Christ was yet to come and that he would be mightier than John and he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. See, so you remember that? Remember when John the Baptist said those exact words? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But one is coming after me who is more powerful than I and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do you remember this? So he told them, when Jesus comes, things are going to be different. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So therefore, John, uh, Paul, excuse me, Paul had figured out by asking some questions where these people stood spiritually because he wanted to help them. So his point was not to cast judgment or to say, oh, really? Well, you're, you're, not, you're not really saved yet. No, that's, his point was to, let me find out where you are so I can help take you where you need to be. That's his point. So he found out where they were, and then he told them about Jesus. And so the result, uh, when, when he's talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, Paul's report doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit, but focuses on the name of Jesus. Because he's the one who fulfilled John the Baptist's prediction. So if they came to put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, then they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and become Christians. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So it's a very um, unique, not uh, singular, but unique instance where... The, the idea of speaking in tongues and prophesying because they received the Holy Spirit was a demonstration to everybody that might have been there looking on, hey, something just happened to these people that was different than what, what happened before. So whatever they had believed up to that point, it was incomplete. And so now Paul came along to fill in the gap, tell them the rest of the story. Say, Jesus is the only one who saves. And so they believed, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were speaking with tongues and prophesying. So, as Michael Green has written, it's crystal clear from what we read here, these disciples were in no sense Christians yet. 
They had not yet believed in Jesus. Whereas through the ministry of Paul, says John Stott, they came to believe and were then baptized with water and the Spirit more or less simultaneously. So here, here's what we need to see about this first paragraph. All right. So here's a summary of verses 1 through 7. We see uh, a state of belief that's not complete. It's not unbelief, but it's not uh, saved as a Christian. So it needs, they need some more information. So Paul gives that to them. So, so what we want to take from this, this first paragraph, is this. What is the norm for the Christian experience? What, what does that look like? What's normal? What can we understand? So the norm of Christian experience, then, is a cluster of four things. Repentance, faith in Jesus, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. And so these might be perceived in a different, uh, you know, the order may vary a little, but those four belong together. They are universal as a Christian experience. Repentance, faith in Jesus, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. So the, I will tell you this, just as a side note. Sometimes uh, it is tempting for folks to take a specific instance in Scripture and maybe not know from an interpretive standpoint the difference between what we would call uh, descriptive versus prescriptive. Uh, let me just quickly tell you the difference. Descriptive means the Bible is relating a, a unique experience that occurred in history. Prescriptive means the, the Bible is showing us the normal way things will happen as a, as a as a routine or as a rule, okay? And so there's always exceptions, but when, when the Bible just... In other words, this is a perfect example to demonstrate what I'm telling you. When, when Paul got saved on the road to Damascus, that is a descriptive account because not every Christian that gets saved, you know, is blinded by a light walking down the road and gets spoken to verbally by the Lord Jesus, okay? That's not... Prescriptive. If it were prescriptive, that means every single person that gets saved would have that experience. But that's not the case, right? So it's descriptive. That was a unique instance, and the Bible told us about it. So we kind of have a similar thing here, because not every time a Christian becomes a Christian does someone physically lay their hands on you, and then you receive the Holy Spirit, and you start speaking in tongues and prophesying. That is not prescriptive. Now, what is prescriptive is this. When you're saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So when you become a Christian, when you repent of your sins and, and profess faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that very clearly. It's a deposit, a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you are full of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing, by the way. That's a good thing. So I want us to just make, sh make sure we understand that it's the Spirit of God that changes lives. It's not saying, oh, I messed up, I'm sorry. And it's not feeling guilty because you got caught doing something wrong. That's not conviction, that's guilt. That's a little different. The thing that changes your life is when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and you're overcome with your need for a Savior because you have a problem that you can't fix yourself that only Jesus can fix and you cry out to Him for forgiveness and salvation. Humble repentance. That, that's what Christianity looks like.
Okay? The Spirit of God changes lives. Number two, the message doesn't depend on location. And this is interesting because it's just verses 8, 9, and 10, but the message doesn't depend on location because look what happens to Paul. He goes into Ephesus and it says in verse 8, he entered the synagogue. And he does that all the time, right? That's been his pattern. Every, every city he goes to, he finds a synagogue and he shows up and starts preaching. He preaches the message of the gospel, which is the message about Jesus Christ as the only Messiah, but he does, and that conflicts with Judaism, which is being taught in the synagogue. So he's going to the location of religious talk, but his message is a little different, okay? So in verse 8, the Bible says he enters the synagogue and says he's, he's speaking boldly. He's speaking out boldly. He does this for three months, and then the two words there, they're to use reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. And that's very important because that's not just, hey, how you doing? Can I tell you about Jesus? That's not. That's not what he's, that's not what he's doing. Paul, you forget, don't forget who Paul was. He's a, form, he's a recovering Pharisee, okay? So he's, he's well-schooled, very smart, very articulate, well-spoken. The man can have a debate, okay? He knows his stuff. He is very confident. The Bible tells us when he, he kind of gives us his pedigree uh, in some of the New Testament letters, he was the top of his class as a Pharisee. He excelled above all his peers. I mean, he was a smart man. So he knew the Scriptures very well. So if you want to have a talk about the Bible and, and you thought you were going to you know, win an argument, Paul's not the guy you want to talk to because he's going to win that argument. Okay. So reasoning and persuading. So he's presenting the facts and uh, doing so in a very, very convincing manner. All right? But here's what's so cool about that. The way it's phrased in verse 8, Look at the very last part of that sentence. Reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. So here, here's what that means, really. To argue from the Old Testament about the kingdom of God is the same as to argue that Jesus is the Christ because it's Jesus the Christ who inaugurated the kingdom of God. So I want you to know kind of more specifically what he's saying because remember, in Judaism, Orthodox Jewish religion, there's, even today, still waiting on a Messiah to come. Not acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah of Scripture. And, and so that's unfortunate because the Messiah has come and lived and died and risen and ascended and is coming again. And they're still waiting on the first go-round because they don't, Count Jesus as the Messiah, even though historically, not just scripturally, historically, Jesus Christ fulfilled every single prophecy in the entire Old Testament about the Messiah, which, by the way, is astronomically, statistically impossible unless it's true. Okay, so so Jesus is the Messiah. That's that's all. That's a settled truth. All right, he, he, Jesus is the Christ. Period. So if you don't believe it, it's, that's your prerogative, but it's not because there's not enough evidence, okay? Because it's all there. So that's what Paul was doing in the midst of a Jewish audience, okay? So he's reasoning, persuading about the kingdom of God. And of course, what happens? 
not everybody believes, right? So you see in verse 9, some were becoming hardened. That, that, that means obstinate, okay? And then it says they were disobedient, which basically means they refused to believe what he was saying. And they were speaking evil of the way. Now the way refers to this, the Christian gospel, that, that belief system. And they were speaking evil, it says publicly. You know what that means? That means they were speaking evil about Christianity before the congregation, the multitudes there in the synagogue. So what did Paul do? He said, I, I'm going to just pick up my marbles and go somewhere else. And he goes to the school of Tyrannus, which is another well-known, well-traveled spot for debate, and he stays there for two years. So whether he's in the synagogue, whether he's on the street, whether he's in this school of Tyrannus, it doesn't matter where he is, his message is the same. It's the gospel. He's reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. So the message does not depend on where you are. Okay? And this is, this is quite a contrast. Let me, let me point out an illustration for this real quick. Here's my personal definition of a politician. Ready? My message depends on who my audience is. If, if I suspect that you're going to agree with a particular thing, well, that's what I'm going to tell you. If I go somewhere else, talk to a different group of people, and I suspect they're going to believe a different thing, well, guess what I'm going to tell them? Exactly what they want to hear. That's a good politician. I'm just going to, uh, well, let me see. Let me take a, a, let me do a little mental poll of the room here. Okay, I think these folks are probably going to resonate more with this point of view, so that's going to be my point of view. And then the next night, I'm in a different place, and let me see, I think they're going to be more of this point of view. Well, that's going to be my point of view. That, so in other words, uh, here it is. No conviction. No conviction. There's, there's never a point where I'm just going to stand up and say, you know what? This is what I believe with all my heart. If you agree with me, wonderful. If you don't, too bad. This is what I believe, period. You know, that's not what happens in our political climate, typically. I'm not going to throw them all under the bus. I'm sure there's some fine people out there that actually have some strong convictions that they hold to. But when it comes to this, when it comes to the gospel, we don't change the message. Never. It's not my message to change. It's God's Word. It's not mine. I didn't write it. I'm just delivering it. So, so whatever this Bible says, that's what I preach. If you like it, awesome. If you don't, I'll pray for you. But I'm not changing the message. Okay? And, and by the way, let me just add this in here. I'm not changing the message. And I know this is live stream, and, and so, so be it. So be it. If there comes a day when some government body tells me I can't preach the gospel according to God's word, y'all just come visit me in jail. Nobody's going to tell me that I can't preach the word of God. I don't care who it is. I don't care who it is. Because there, there's a, 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 an authority that a Christian answers to, and it's not human. It's not on this earth. There is no 
governing body that ever has the right or the power to tell a preacher what they can preach. And so, you know, I'm sure that prisons need ministry too. So if it happens, it happens. But I'm just going to tell you, that's how... And, and that's not just from a pastor's standpoint. That's supposed to be from a Christian's standpoint. That, that, that's not, oh, well, he's the preacher, he's got to say that. No, I don't. No, I don't. I can buckle under the pressure and just change my message just like any other politician. But last time I checked, this is my authority. And it's not some person that decides it's not right. That's just extra. You're welcome. <laughs> so what was the effect of this? Paul reasoning and persuading three months in the synagogue, then two years in the school of Tyrannus. And look what it says in verse 10. All who lived in the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks. Paul got around. He got the message out there. Okay? Two years, and everyone in the province of Asia, in that Roman province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Message doesn't depend on location. Last one, number three. This is the best one. The word of God will prevail. Amen. The word of God will always prevail. Look at verse 11, how this last paragraph begins. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And he, even clothes that were touching him were being carried out to folks who were sick or possessed by demons and they were getting better and the, and the evil spirits were leaving. I mean, that's, that's a testimony to the power of God. Because it wasn't Paul. You understand that? It wasn't Paul. He didn't, it's like, oh, well, I showered this morning and I smell pretty good. Here, take this and hand it to somebody who's sick. They'll get better. No, no, that's, that's not what was happening. It was because it was the power of God, the power of the Word of God. So the Word of God will prevail. Now, and here's how the contrast breaks down in this last paragraph. At first, grant, at first glance, you, you look at this and you think, well, that's kind of like some sort of black magic kind of thing, like a magical activity. It's not. God's sovereign role in this process is really what is highlighted. Because God healed, he healed people in this way, accommodating to human beliefs and expectations in order to encourage them to draw near and discover what it was that Paul, who was his messenger, had to say. Because if temporarily the focus can go to Paul, then that draws people to Paul. And what's Paul going to do when people show up? He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to point them to Jesus. So it was another way that God used him and used that uh, supernatural event to get the message spread out. Now here's the problem. Remember what my opening little story was? Your daddy got you this job. Remember that? All right. Pay attention. Verse 13. Some of the Jewish exorcists were trying to name the name of Jesus over people who had evil spirits. And they said it this way. I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Now, anybody see a problem with that? Yeah. Well, there's about to be a problem with it. Seven sons of the same Jewish high, uh, chief priest were doing this. And look at verse 15. This is my favorite verse in the whole passage. Verse 15, the evil spirit in the man talks to these boys. 
And he says, now listen, be very careful to hear this. The evil spirit says, I know Jesus. Did you hear that? Even the evil spirit knows who Jesus is. And they're very afraid. Then he says, and I recognize Paul. Paul is being so mightily used by God, the evil spirits know his name. You know that little meme that goes around, it's just a little funny thing that says, I want to be so full of the Spirit that every time I wake up, it's the devil says, oh no, he's awake. You know, like, okay. Well, guess what? They knew Paul. But you see the third part of that sentence? I know Jesus. I recognize Paul. But who are you? That's, that's just an indication that this is not going to end well for them. Who are you? And, and, and basically, even the evil spirits knew. You have no business calling on the name of Jesus because you don't know the man. That, that's a huge point right there. They can't call on somebody they don't know. They can't invoke the authority or power of Jesus because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They can't get a job that they don't deserve because they don't, they don't belong in the family. You understand? They are trying to use power that's not theirs or benefit from a relationship they don't have. And so that's where their first mistake was. There is power in the name of Jesus. Saving, healing power. As Luke has demonstrated very well in the book of Acts. But the uh, effect of the name of Jesus and the power it holds, it's not mechanical. It's not a, a mechanism. And it's certainly something that you can't use secondhand. If you don't know Jesus, and if he doesn't know you, then you are in no position. Have you ever seen a lost person use the name of God or the name of Jesus? Have you ever seen... Uh, a friend or family member that you have, maybe even on social media, oh, dear God, please don't do this, you know, something like that, just kind of like flippantly, just like not, just kind of throwing it out there. But you're thinking, well, hmm, that's interesting. wonder why they say it that way. They don't know God, but they're calling on Him. You, you know that cliche, there's no, no atheists in a foxhole? You know why? When things get tough, seems like everybody wants to call on God. But when they perceive that things are okay, eh, I don't need God right now. Just stay over there. Don't bother me. Don't, don't get all up in my business. Don't try to affect the way I live or change my lifestyle or habits or, or behavior or... or uh, or speech or anything, you know, don't, don't try to affect my life, but if I get in real trouble, I'm going to call you. Really? Well, after this evil spirit answered these folks, the man that had the evil spirit in him, the Bible says in verse 16, he leaped on, the seven of them, there's one on seven, leaped on them, subdued them all, and overpowered them. 
So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Basically, he beat the pants off of them. Literally. Because it says they went running out naked and wounded. Okay? Not a good scene. But that's what happened. That's what happened. So what, what's going on is these Jewish exorcists, they were fascinated by the influence and power, not of God, of Paul. See, it was jealousy. Hey, well, Paul's over here getting all this attention. He's healing all these people, and they're even taking his clothes out there, and it's got power. We need to get in on some of that. We might need to get some notoriety, maybe some, a paycheck or something based on that, you know? And so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to angle in on some sort of uh, attention, but not, not understanding it's all about a relationship. It's not about some outward attention or notoriety, the spotlight. It's not it at all. It's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ that comes through hearing and embracing the gospel truth. It's the Word of God that has the power because it's the God behind the Word that is exercising the power. Does that make sense? So they're, they're trying to do this. Basically, it's a fraud. It was a fraud. They were not Christians, and they were trying to use the name of Jesus like a magic formula. That's what they were doing. So the evil spirit himself, Paul didn't have to deal with it. The evil spirit took care of that nonsense. So here's the thing that, one of the things we can take from this. The forces of evil know the difference between someone who is truly ministering in the name of Jesus and someone who's just pretending. Even the evil spirits know that. And so this spirit was not easily overcome. In fact, you know, quite the opposite. But you know what's funny? If this same command had come out of Paul's mouth, you know what would have happened? That evil spirit would have been sent running. Running the other way. Because Paul was serving the God who has the power and the authority. Amen. And these other folks were not. They were simply trying to get in on some of the attention. Selfishly for themselves. But Paul had paid the price. He had humbled himself and he had repented of his sins. He had, he had been changed by the power of God through Christ. And so that's where the power came from. That's why the word of God will prevail. Look at how this story closes. Everybody in Ephesus heard about this. Everybody got scared because they realized there was power in the name of Jesus. And look how they expressed their fear. The name of Jesus was being magnified. People were confessing their sins and their evil practices. And this is the best part. Look at verse 19. They saw what happened to these Jewish exorcists that practiced these magic arts things. And so all the people in Ephesus who did the same thing, all the books that gave them their information for their practices, they took all that stuff and brought it to town and set it on fire. <laughs> that's so funny. It's like, I don't want any part of this. I mean, you see what happened to those guys. I, I don't, that's, no, I'm, uh, no, no, I don't, this isn't that important. I don't, I don't need that. And they, they burned it up, 50,000 pieces of silver. And the, the coins, Greek drachma, a drachma coin, one of them 
One of those is equals to a day's pay. 50,000 days of work was how much these books were worth, and they burned them up. You see how important it was to not be associated with something that is opposing the Spirit of God? That was their response. They didn't want anything to do with what had just happened to those Jewish exorcists because they saw and experienced the power of the Lord Jesus. The Word of God is going to prevail. And look at the way uh, this particular paragraph closes up, this section. The Word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So from previous context, we can discern that the church grew because more and more people were believing in the gospel. But from this particular context, we can also learn that the power of the gospel to transform lives was associated with and illustrated by all these things that God was doing through Paul and through the preaching of the gospel. It was confounding people false religion, magic, all these things, it was being exposed for what it was. And here's how the people ended up viewing the religious landscape in Ephesus. There's one way, and it's Jesus. So, so what is it that we can take from that? Only the Spirit of God changes lives. We don't change the gospel depending on where we are, who we're talking to. And the Word of God is going to prevail. And you can look around in our culture and you can look around in our world and from human eyes it can appear many times we might be losing here. You know, what's going on? Why is all this junk happening in the world? Why, why are people acting the way they're acting? Why, uh, this, is, this just can't be right. Just keep, keep reading. Keep reading. The Word of God will prevail. And God himself will prevail. I promise you this. God is in heaven, seated firmly on his throne. He's not nervous. Okay? All these things going on, God's not nervous. He, he's, he's confident because he is almighty. That's all we need to know. Trust him. Trust him. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.